You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. What do all of these frauds have in common? FTX, Madoff, Lehman Brothers, Enron. I could keep naming frauds all the way back to the 1500s, actually. Like whenever there's a new industry that's hard to understand and it's unregulated, huge frauds occur. How can we stop this? How can you trust the system? Where do you keep your money? And what is the playbook of a fraud? So Antonio Reza, who just wrote a great Twitter thread on the Enron fraud and is also in finance for Google, comes on the podcast and we talk about frauds, Enron, FTX, Madoff, and so on. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Antonio Reza, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Very glad to be here. I saw your thread on Enron, which was, if people don't know, was kind of a classic, classic example of fraud. In fact, at that time, and maybe still is, the biggest fraud in corporate history. But I say classic example because we'll go through how they did fraud and, and 
it's kind of like the ABCs of like how to commit a corporate fraud. And I'm also curious, you know, now this is topical because of FTX and people are comparing it to Enron. So it'd be interesting to maybe discuss that. But again, Enron, 2002, 2001, 2000, biggest corporate fraud in history, famous corporate fraud. Movies have been made about it. Let's, why did you write a thread about that? So I think, you know, I'm starting to build this like presence a little bit more on Twitter, you know, trying to find my niche and things like that. And I've, I've been, I've been in finance and accounting for many, many years now. And um, I was like, well, you know, this, this is one story that I remember so, so much because I, I saw the movie when I was in college and the story just like hit me of how important having a CFO, a compliance culture and all that, uh, you know, it's very important for a company. And then I just decided to write it just for fun. And then coincidentally, this whole FTX happened. And then I read this article from the Secretary of Treasury before. And he was like saying, no, no, this is more like Enron. And I was like, yeah, I agree. So then I shared it. And then it just kind of like resonated with people. And But it was honestly just for fun. Yeah, the more <laughs> I see, and this is why your thread on Enron is so interesting because it's it's as if and you could even go all the way back to, you know, the the South Sea bubble and what was going on there. Like all of a sudden, I realized, yeah, FTX and Enron are similar. We'll get to the similarities in a second. Mm-hmm. And it is almost like a playbook. Like these guys, whether they know it or not, they're almost doing the same techniques, and not just how they're moving money around, but how they're squashing internal communications in the company and and so on. And you know, maybe it's just. They have to do that that way to commit fraud, or I wonder if they're just learning. Like, well, this is how Enron did it, so I'm going to do it. But, but let, let's let's break down Enron for a second, and and you know, how would you how would you describe it? How would you describe Enron? Yeah, I mean, I think for the people that don't know, I guess the younger ones. Um, so it was basically one of the biggest Fortune 500 companies, you know, back in the late 80s, 90s, and they dominated the market in natural gas this company who started to become very innovative in terms of not just selling the natural gas, but actually bundling it up as a security and then trading it you know, with many, many businesses. And they started to create this like market leadership and they became huge in, in terms of, you know, back then it was like a 60 billion valuation, uh, which was huge back then. But then it was a house of cards. It just started to... Well, let me ask you a question. Let me interrupt yeah. there and, and, and just break that down a little bit. They didn't like drill for natural gas or anything. They didn't produce the natural no, gas, no, no. but they helped energy companies that did. Like your standard utility company that might have natural gas, but they needed to hedge their risk. Like, oh, what if we just bought all this natural gas, a contract for the next five years, but what if natural gas goes down and we just spent all this money? Companies would then use Enron to take the other side of their risk. Like Enron would say, don't worry. It's almost like an insurance company. Like, don't worry, we'll... If, if natural gas goes down, we'll compensate you this way. And then Enron would trade natural gas futures to kind of hedge their risk. Yeah, so they, they were basically like an intermediary of the natural gas producers and their final customers. And like you said, they just mitigated the risk. And the thing with this or the complexity was that these contracts were really long, like sometimes 10 to 20 years. And it just, it was ripe to have some sort of accounting manipulation to make the earnings a lot better than they were. Yeah, because how did any company, like if I'm a, let's say I'm Duke Energy or Con Edison, how can I trust that, oh, okay, it's nice that they're going to hedge 
a 10-year, the risk of a 10-year contract. What if natural gas goes to zero and I just bought all this natural gas? I'm screwed if I have a 10-year contract. So it's nice that Enron said to everybody, oh, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. But how can, if you're, if you're Duke or Con Edison or any big utility company, how could you really trust that they, they know enough to hedge that risk? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think, uh, like you said, I, I don't think you could even guess or estimate the the price of natural gas beyond twelve months, even if you looked at you know market indexes or whatever. Um, so no, I think nobody could trust them. But I think it was just a lot of hype around the company and how smart they were and how they were just booking earnings um, in the current quarter and they just keep growing. The stock kept growing and they just became like that market. I think it was a lot of hype and. Customers just trusted them, and not just the customers, but also their independent consultants, their auditors, like everybody, even the SEC actually trusted them on how they were valuing these contracts and then how they're booking them. And I think all of that together just created this sort of uh, trust in the system, and people were just making business with them. I mean, step one is is, and this is for true for Enron. It's true for WorldCom. It's true for Bernie Madoff. Mm-hmm. It's true for FTX. All of these frauds have this thing in common, which is they have high up government, you know, connections, trust, support. You know, in in the FTX example, I don't know all the details, but his parents are involved heavily with the administration. Uh, and with Enron, Ken Lay was like best friends or good friends with George W. Yep. Bush. And I'm not I'm not saying the politicians any of these people are guilty. They didn't know. It's just that Ken Lay, who was the CEO of Enron, was able to kind of wear this as a badge of honor, just as Sam Bankman-Fried was able to wear the other side as a badge of honor. Um, Madoff had been instrumental in creating the NASDAQ. So everybody thought, oh my God, this is the smartest guy in the world. He's a genius. Uh, Worldcom was in charge of the Department of Defense's telecom system. So everybody thought he was beyond reproach. But then, you know, the other thing is, is that they're all dealing with kind of mathematically intent. They're not just trading stocks. They're dealing with something that's a little bit too hard to understand. Natural gas derivatives. Yeah. How the whole, all the, I should have mentioned Lehman Brothers in, in there too. You know, housing derivatives, derivatives of derivatives of derivatives. Like it was, you know, Sam Bankman Fried. Nobody knows what the heck he was doing yeah. with all the crypto stuff and derivatives on cryptos. And FTX was like the biggest crypto derivatives exchange. So, so it's all, so, Step two is deal with something that's so complicated you don't even really need to explain it. Yeah, in fact, I think they it was a point of pride for them to to not explain that. Um, I remember in one of the analyst calls, somebody asked them, "How come we never get a statement of cash flows when you report earnings or you give guidance?" And the guys were like, "Well, you know, it's just." It's the way it is. And then we cannot explain and we take pride in that, that we cannot explain our business because it's very complex and only smart people understand that. So it, it was Yeah, same, same with Madoff. Yeah, it was, yeah, was like culture. Madoff had like some name for his option strategy and, and, and so on. And so, so yeah, so, and the other thing that is, is kind of part of the downfall, it's not part of the playbook of committing fraud, but part of the downfall uh, is eventually... The, the entire market turns and you can't yeah. like, like here's a typical thing. So let's take Enron as they have, as they have fake gains, but they really have losses. It's no problem for them when they're small because they say, Hey, we have gains. 
the stock grows, they could sell stock to raise money and that covers up the losses. There's various ways you could use, you have cash in the bank so you can cover mm -hmm. up your losses. And, but eventually at some point, as they say, the tide comes out and this is what happened in every single case. Uh, Enron, Lehman Brothers, Madoff, FTX, is that there's no source of cash anymore and they're too big now. So the losses are not 5 million, it's 10 billion. Yep. And so, so, like, so like, what was Enron doing to, to commit fraud? So there were two things that stood out. So the first one was Jeff Skilling, who was at some point the, the CEO, right? He, he came from a consulting background. And one of the, his ideas was to use this method called mark-to-mark -mark accounting. Basically, what that means is that you're able to book the earnings of a 10, 20-year contract in the current period rather than spread it out throughout the life of the contract. Let, let me explain that like in simple terms. Sure. This is if, let's say on the last day of the year, um, you get a contract for $100 million. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's for the next 10 years. So, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm a chair company. I'm going to sell lawn chairs to somebody over the next 10 years, and they're going to be ultimately $100 million. It's as if they're booking that $100 million that day rather than spread out over the 10 years. Exactly. And then the problem with that is that, so your earnings look great, which pumps the stock, but then the cash will only come in quarter after quarter, right, as, as the payments come through. So there's this huge, huge mismatch between earnings and cash, and that's what basically created a liquidity crunch, and that's what, ma what made the Enron, you know, basically fall. That was one thing. And then the other thing, which you could say was even more obscure, which is the one that I find even more fascinating from a finance standpoint, is that the CFO was using all these like special purpose entities to basically move any project that would be bad or would have a bad margin, and then they would move it off balance sheet. So that project would never show up in the financial statements that went to the street. So therefore, everybody would be thinking, nothing's wrong. It's great. And so this is always the curious thing, because this kind of became a gray area legally in all their trials, because... Yeah. Technically, you can move something to another business. And then the question is, how do you value that new business? Well, they were just valuing it because that new business might be have a, a corporate veil around it. You don't really know then once, it, once an asset is in the new company. So, okay, let's say I'm committing fraud. I have something that lost a lot of money, but I don't want to tell people about it. I have an investor that lost people a lot of money, but it's illiquid anyway. I don't want to tell people about it. I create another company, move that asset in it. Um, maybe I invest, you know, I'm investing in that new company with the asset I put into it, but I'm just, now what's that new company worth? That's what is on the balance sheet. Well, I could say it's worth anything I want to say it's worth. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, these guys had like probably hundreds of, of those uh, special purpose entities and it was like a maze. Like, no, I think until today, nobody can explain how they moved all of those balances. And when you, I mean, when you read the book, they actually explain how uh, Andy Fasta, who was the CFO, actually made deals or cut deals with the banks to, you know, move the money for him into these like kind of vessels of that, that were containing the bad projects and the bad margins. Okay, but let me ask you a question. Like, so let's say you're the CFO and you have some asset you want, you don't want anybody to see. So you create a new company. Let's call it a special purpose vehicle, but it's really just a new company. Yep. And now this new company buys this asset from you for, uh, you know, 
let's say let's say the asset you want to tell people it's worth $100. The new company will buy it for $100. You'll have an agreement. They won't necessarily send the money to you, but they'll have an agreement to buy it for $100. And now you can say, oh, it's gone. I sold it for $100. We'll get that $100 later, but don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly how that works. But I know, for example, there's tactics where I think, that, I don't know which company they did this with, but they they faked a sale. I think it was kind of like a loan. Like we're loaning you this asset, so it's no longer in my balance sheet. Then you're going to buy it from me, right? And then I'm going to declare the revenue, book the earnings with that. But then in the in the next quarter, then I'm going to do like a refund. and then the asset comes back to me, it's again in my balance sheet, but I already reported the earnings and the revenue the prior period and the stock is already pumped. So I think it's something like that. Your, your point is the stock's already so high that now if it's exactly. a loss, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And they, keep, and they just keep doing that like a, on a rolling basis. I think that's one of the things that, that was legal back then and, and you could do. And there were, for example, a lot of the issues in in accounting with revenue recognition is that at the end of the year, a lot of them try to do that. Like they, they would try to pump, for example, there were uh, stories where people would actually, you know, sell warehouses of inventory, but it was more like a leaseback where you would actually just transfer the asset, but then you would get it back the next year. So then the inventory would come back. But on the reported year that ended, your sales went, went through the roof. So the valuation of the stock went up, the market capitalization was, was up, and then it's just a new year, you operate the same way and you just keep rolling and doing the same thing. The problem is, what happens is, and, and by the way, a lot of hedge funds used to do this and maybe still do. So mm-hmm. have, you, have you ever heard of uh, like pipe funds? So they, they would invest in a stock at like, let's say a stock was trading for $5. They would invest directly into the company and buy stock for $3. And so, but the stock was restricted. And so oh. the question is, how do you value, like, like they would buy the stock for $3, but they could, hypothetically market at $5 that day. And a lot of hedge funds would do this and they would say, oh, we're up 60% this month. And then they would raise a ton of money. And so then they would, oh, wow. then they would take the loss the next quarter or the next month even. And, but it doesn't matter because the loss would be much tinier for them now because they raised the new money. Then the, the gain was huge, but the loss was small, even though it was the same dollar amount percentage-wise. Wow, no, never heard of that well. So, so yeah, I mean, it's like financial engineering. <laughs> Enron is kind of, was kind of doing the same thing, but don't they start to think, hey, if our stock stops going up, we're in trouble? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's when, um, when like the, there was a whistleblower. Basically, they just kind of looked at. I think they removed the layer, and then she started reporting straight to the CFO, and she started asking questions like, hey, this doesn't add up. Like, how come we have you know earnings that we have not? realized booked in the period where's the cash like i think this this might be fraud and i think that the the ceo uh, kenneth lay back then said like no 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 it's, it's fine and she he kind of brushed her off and they just kept telling the story that the stock was great the stock was great but then everything started to fall apart once the cuz they were all depending on on deregulation on the deregulation of of natural gas that for them was the blessing but when you know especially the state of california and, and i think overall the united states started to Close that door, and and everything started to get more regulated. It was a house of cards. Like all the shanks in the armament started to show, and they had to start, you know, basically disclosing. And then the SEC got involved. There were investigations. So, you know, it's funny how one thing that they were betting on, and they were super, uh, let's say, they were spending so much money on deregulation and lobbying, uh, but when it stopped, 
it just the the whole company crashed. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that I'm ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So. I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? Zip Recruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter. And I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails, like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. 
See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So in the fraud, they were doing this mark-to-market where they were recognizing revenues they should not have recognized because it was over like a 10-year period. They were recognizing it right away. And they also took yep. anything that was a loss, moved it over to a new a new company, and now they couldn't see the loss. It was only still a gain until they were big enough that they could recognize the loss and it wasn't a big deal. Was there a third component of the, th- of the fraud? Um, this one wasn't necessarily, let's say, the an accounting fraud, but one of the business practices that was pretty, um, let's say, um, aggressive or super aggressive was that the traders would actually, there was this whole drama where they actually were shutting down power plants to start creating demand. Um, and then that would pump the price up of the of the trades. They would make money. But then people, for example, in, in, their, in their homes, they would actually not have energy. And then Whenever the bill came, the, the prices were extremely huge. And these guys, there's recordings of the traders where they're actually making fun of people. Like, hey, just shut it down. And it's fine if California burns and whatever. So then they would, there's some calls with the plant managers like, hey, there's uh, not a lot of demand at this plant. Uh, can you just shut it down? And then the price will be... And he's like, yeah, yeah, I can shut it down for the next three, four hours. And then I can uh, you know, start it, start it back up. So that was like more not necessarily accounting malpractice. But just in terms of the business practice, that was very, very aggressive. And it just messed with people's lives. And, and, and in the end, they got sued for that as well. And, Conspiracy charges. And, and again, like that actually is really insidious. That, that's pro- yeah. uh, but all of this stuff, like let's even take the mark-to-market stuff. You mm-hmm. know, here's, here's an example where there's always a debate. I have this asset. Is it worth more than I paid for it? Or is it worth less than I pay for it? Well, if there's no market for it, you don't really know. And if the market is very, if there's not a lot of people in the market, you might know, it's, it's a very a question of how you value something. Like, let's say I want to value my house, but the how, and let's say my house is exactly the same as the house next door. Now the guy in the house next door is getting a divorce. And so he has to sell his house quickly to pay for the divorce. And so he sells it for 50% discount to what, you know, most people was worth. Now is my house, if I'm marking to market, technically my house is now worth 50% less because this duplicate house is just sold for 50% down. So then it's not quite fair to mark to market. And this was the problem the banks had in the mm. financial crisis is that you know these things would be happening. Like the housing market was falling apart, but in some areas it was falling apart too much. So if you mark to market, uh, the banks suddenly were out of business all of a sudden. Because yeah. so they became like a, a a phrase marked to imagination. Like banks were allowed to use their best fair estimate, which of course you know that's like giving the the criminal the keys to the the jail. Uh, yeah, I think he wanted to do that at the beginning, kind of replicate the bank model where you basically like use mark to market when you kind of like like you said, right? You you basically adjust the value of your portfolio based on what's happening in the market, but. I think that where they got it wrong was that they were booking everything in the quarter. Like 
that that was the big mistake because even I remember in my days when I was in GE and I was in this like uh, business and basically it was called the power services and we had long term agreements as well like thirty years. Um, but basically, the, the value of that contract you would carry it in the balance sheet at uh, basically at cost, and you would adjust the value based on kind of like mark to market. Let's say it wasn't called that the methodology, but it was on a quarterly basis, and you would adjust it, you know, very mildly. Like it wasn't that aggressive. Like you would try to match as much as possible the revenue with the cash uh, and the mark the market value of you know whatever any big swing in the economy that that would affect that value but it was something more methodical where this is was extremely aggressive and then it just creates like this vicious cycle because once you recognize that all the earnings in one quarter then the next one you need to catch up right so that you need to book another one the same size and then another one so that you start showing growth so it became addictive to these guys to just start booking contracts and then mark the price up and then book everything in the quarter and just keep making deals and deals and these and, and volume Right, like like the most conservative thing you could do is until something is bringing cash in, you you mark an asset at cost or lower. So like it's lower and, and you have, a like you were saying, it has to be a methodical algorithm so that you can't change it mid-quarter. And that's the most conservative thing you do. This way you can never uh, take a profit on it unless there actually is cash coming in the door. But GE though was, I'm sure it was methodical, but GE was known for GE Capital in particular was known for smoothing out earnings. Like it's very consistent their earnings because they would, like you say, buy these assets. The assets were, you know, at discounts. Let's say to the their their actual value, but they might have other you know legal restrictions or whatever. And so they had a, an algorithm for figuring out they wouldn't take the full value, but they would take partial value, and that's how they would smooth earnings. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know every company. Back then, used to do that, right? That whenever, again, it was GE. Uh, you can think about Halliburton. All these companies that were in big industrials. Whenever the end of the year would come, there was some sort of a let's say accounting maneuvering to try to make their earnings estimate. But the fundamental reality was that there was enough cash coming in next quarter. Like your cash flow was not at risk. That was that was the key. That's why you know they disclosed the cash flow statement and it. You could see how the whole three statements are kind of flowing together, whereas Enron did not disclose cash flow, um, and they were just, you know, reckless on how how the accounting was treated. So I think that's the big mismatch between manipulating or smoothing earnings, if you want, from mild accounting, like you know, within the framework of legality, <laughs> and uh, and these guys were just like, you know, basically committing fraud. Yeah, because. Ultimately, the only way they could get cash was by their stock getting bigger and then raising cash by selling stock as opposed to getting actual cash flows. And, yeah. and the way they were getting their stock higher was by reporting these gains that were not accurate. And you know, so the question, the question is though, um, like you said, one person was a whistleblower. She noticed there was no cash coming in and she noticed there were all these, you know, all these investments that maybe they had made the quarter before were disappearing off the book. Where were they? Oh, we sold it to, you know, XYZ3 Inc. in Connecticut. <laughs> and, then, and then we're just valuing it on our books at the same amount or, or maybe even a little higher because XYZ paid, paid up for it. And in this contract, here's the contract. And uh, you wonder, why didn't people dig in further? I mean, it's funny because the, their motto was 
their slogan was "Ask Why," <laughs> and uh, just people did not ask. Art. Like if you uh, if you look at the documentary, a lot of them were like the thing is that we were just fed up with this culture of the strongest survive, uh, and there's career opportunity here for you, and then everybody was getting big paychecks, right? And bonuses, and people were, you know, cashing in stocks. So I think that there was this culture of, you know, nothing will happen to you if you make money, and and that was that was known throughout the company. Because even I think the the first fraud story um, was with these people that were basically taking funds from the company and then just making bets, kind of like a hedge fund a little bit, and then they were making millions. And then they said, "Hey, you cannot do that." And then Kenneth Lay said, no, 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 just keep making those millions because that's the only division that makes money. And then that just trickled down and that was the culture of the company to the point that some of the execs, uh, apparently they had disagreements with the CEO and the COO. They quit, they went to another company, they couldn't cut it there because the culture was not the same. And then they came back to Enron because they knew that the only place where they could thrive was in a company like that, where you had, you know, basically carte blanche, like uh, to do whatever you want. And... You know, I wonder how many, like if, if the markets had moved in the direction that they wanted, I wonder if they would have in the long term gotten away with it or if eventually they would have just got, again, gotten so big that just a small move in the markets, they would have come tumbling down. Um, and then I wonder how question. many companies did get away with it because they made some bet that was illegal. I mean, they, they hit it in some illegal way and then the markets did kind of go in their way and they survived. And they said, okay, phew, never going to do that again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure there's examples like that. Especially even, you could say, more mid-cap companies, right? Um, right, because that was small enough to get away with it. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, uh, especially in anything that is, I think, uh, retail, where they were like, before that governance started to kick in, where, hey, you cannot, basically like, you know, the four criteria to recognize revenue, right? Like, the most important one, you need to, uh, it says like you have to deliver the product or, or render the services. But in reality, what that means is that you need to transfer the risk of ownership completely to the customer or to that other person. And in these cases where, hey, you leave it on the, on the warehouse or I transfer risk of ownership when the thing is on the, on the truck, um, it's, you could play with that. You could manipulate that a little bit. But now it's so restrictive to like, no, until the customer signs off the order and says it's mine now, and it's transfer physical transfer of risk and on paper. Uh, now it's a lot harder to get away with. It. But back then, I mean, anything that was retail or, you know, maybe some small manufacturing, I'm pretty sure that some people got away with it. You know, the essence of all this kind of like finance law, it, it seems to me, and I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know, but it just seems to me being in this world for a long time, there's two things. One is, disclosure, just disclose everything mm -hmm. you have. If it's a loss, it's a loss. If it's a gain, it's a gain. If you're doing something illegal, just disclose it. And chances are, because you disclosed it, it'll be fine. Like, oh, you're using special yeah. purpose vehicles? Disclose all those special purpose vehicles and what's inside them and how you're valuing these assets. And then the market decide if you're doing it fairly or not. But if you disclose yeah. it, you can at least say, hey, you weren't lying. The other thing is risk. Every transaction has to have risk. Else, why are you doing the transaction? Because a lot of times, Oh, I could run a hedge fund, and if something's down, I could run another hedge fund, which buys the asset risklessly from me. There's ways to pretend like you're taking risk, but actually not taking any risk. Yeah, and you know it's funny that you say that because now it's actually required to disclose, for example, on the income statement that 
you have all these uh, couple lines where are like discontinued operations, right? Where it's basically a line where you say, okay, stuff that didn't work out and it's a bad margin or whatever, you just put it in that bucket. And then there's footnotes in the financial statements where you kind of know what are those and, and then the price of the stock, right? Just considers that in and then that's, that's the reality. And um, I think there's more checks and balances now. Again, in what's re- already regulated because when you start talking into more deregulated space, just like Enron and now probably on this uh, crypto space, it, it's a lot harder to know what's going on, what's within a corporate structure. Right, because there's two things about it being unregulated. First off, if it's not regulated, there aren't laws. So, mm-hmm. for instance, trading in energy derivatives at the level Enron was, it's unclear what the law, this is what, this was their entire argument. This is why some of those executives actually took the risk of going to court. They could have had a plea deal and gotten like one or two years in jail. I remember there was one executive, he was working for the CFO and Mm -hmm. he decided to go to court because he didn't think what they did was technically illegal and he got 20 years in jail. And Mm -hmm. because, so, so there's that part that if it's unregulated, the laws are very unclear. We see this with Lehman Brothers and the whole financial crisis. It's unclear what happens if you mark credit default swaps on, you know, collateralized, you know, futures of collateralized mortgage obligations. There's like derivatives on derivatives on derivatives. There were no laws for these things. No one knew how to value these things. They were just saying, we didn't know. It's, you value them how you value them. And then in even like, um, uh, uh, you know, FTX, it's not that they were unregulated. They're outside the U.S. So yep. it's Bahamas law. Like it's, un, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting court trial when that does come to trial, because what are the laws they broke? There's not any laws yet. We know that he committed fraud, but it's unclear, I think, exactly which law we're going to use to get him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, in that space, it's probably more, again, I'm not no expert, but just from, you know, the little literature that I've read, the regulation in crypto is a lot less prescriptive. Of you know what should you consider as a security? What should be considered as a commodity? Who can, for example, mint these types of, of coins of tokens? Uh, and can you use them as collateral? Which is what he did, right? And that's why he why he got in trouble. So it, it, this one is a very deregulated space. And then to add to the fact that they can operate from outside the U.S. and that's that's a tough one. I mean, we know they use. Just like Enron, they use separate entities to mm-hmm. kind of cloak their losses. So if something was a loss in FTX, they Alameda could could buy it from them. Or if yeah. or, or or vice versa. If something was a loss in Alameda, which was their hedge fund, then you know, FTX could put customer this is where FTX certainly could broke some law somewhere, is that FTX would take customer money and patch up the losses in Alameda, yep. which works when you're small again. But doesn't work when you're too big to to hide it. Like and 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 all the whole crypto markets coming down. And then I guess a third thing, if you could mint your own coin, your own money, and then put that in the hedge fund, it's another. Oh, FTT, the currency is trading for so many dollars a, a token. Yep. Let's just mint some more and we'll put it in Alameda. And let me let me ask you about this. Like, so Alameda would invest in a private company or even a public company like Robinhood. Mm-hmm. The company would be required to put their, those dollars that were just invested by Alameda into the exchange FTX. And then FTX then would use that money, that exact same money that just left Alameda 
they would put it back into Alameda to hide losses. Yep. That's got to be illegal somewhere. I can't even get my head around <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean, this one, I mean, think about it. The Back to the regulated space, right? You cannot say, hey, I just created this fiat currency that I'm going to use as collateral for that loan or investing in that company if it tanks, right? But here, that's what they did. They, they basically use their token, which has some sort of speculative value. And people believed in it because you know all these people were invested in it. They said, okay, yeah, that market price will hold, so I'm just going to put it here, and that's the collateral for whatever bets I, you know, if I lose the bet on, on this hedge fund risk, whatever. Uh, that was it. Like they were, crea- they were minting their own money, which is something that you cannot do in the regulated space. So that's, again, not sure if that's illegal, but again, because there's no framework, there's no legal framework to protect that. But uh, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's crazy. A, that's the thing. Like, again, all of these things, this is why the, the Enron executives themselves were confused as to the legality of whether they, they were willing to take the risk of going to court and going to jail for 20 years when they had a plea bargain right in front of them. They took that risk because they didn't think, they, they probably knew it was wrong, but they didn't think it was illegal. And yeah, and, and you know what? It's funny because back then, the the main thing they were pushing it was this like the securitization of things. That back then was kind of like a trend. Back then, it started that movement of oh, I can make anything a security, you know, and and sell it to the market and get more money and use that money to make more bets. That was not regulated that well back then. It was it was kind of like a new financial, let's say. Uh, I would like move or 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 hack to come yeah. up with money and profits. And now, for example, if you do that parallel with what FTX is doing, for example, minting your own coin, giving certain discounts or or advantages to people that hold that coin, therefore that again not regulated. There's not a framework. You they they probably could still argue what we did. It was okay because it was you know. People believed in it. It's just like the money, right? It's not. It's backed by the difference. It's backed by the central banks, but like there's a value. There's a there's a there's a value in that token, right? There's a liquid. Mar- the it was a liquid market for FTT. It was trading for like yeah. thirty two dollars a token, and so yeah. they had it on their balance sheet. They were marking it to market, and mm-hmm. oh yeah, we have this token that's valued <laughs> at, at X. And um, but of course, it was like you said, a house of cards. Like once the tide came in, I mean, all these things have a triggering event, like in FTX. There was the fact that Binance was going to sell all their tokens that suddenly scared everyone. There was literally a run on the bank. Everybody wanted their money out of FTX and, yeah. and FTX had no money left because they had given it all to Alameda, the hedge fund. And, and it was insane. Like it was not a small, I was reading today that it was, I think they had a total of 16 billion of, of assets and they loaned 10. Yeah, to Alameda. Of customer funds. Yeah. But it was like, it was not, okay, one, (laughs) it was like more than half. Okay, but let me ask you a question. Like, if I'm a bank and you give me, you put money in your savings account, I am, as a bank, allowed to use that money. So, for instance, I will lend it out to homeowners and this is your mortgage. So, I mean, it's heavily regulated and there's a certain, you know, percentage you're not allowed to to loan out and you have to keep track very accurately. But... Again, that's the there's a spectrum of regulated to unregulated. Some of these things are wrong, but gray area legally because a bank's allowed to use your yep. your your they could they could loan the money to a hedge fund, for instance. 
Yeah. So here, actually, that's a, that's an interesting point. Here, what happened, from what I understand, is that FTX, because they're an exchange, they're required to have reserves of one to one. So if if a customer has one Bitcoin, they're required to have one Bitcoin. And then there has to be the legal framework there is that you have to be, if you think about the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, they have to have a very clear segregation of what's customer funds and what is their, let's say, pool of funds that they can play with. So that's fine that they had this hedge fund and whatnot. And and, and even if FTX with their own money wanted to loan that out, that was fine. But they played with the reserves. So that's why they couldn't fulfill the promise when there was a money, um, sorry, the, the, the bank run. Well, they, they claimed to have a billion dollars in reserves, but, you know, or I don't know if, I don't know if Sam Bankman-Fried lied or not, but when, when it was about, when the fraud was about to break, he said, we have a billion dollars liquid and, but there was more than a billion dollars of run on FTX. And so they Mm -hmm. couldn't meet it. Um, now people didn't know that a lot of the assets on their balance sheet was in the form of loans to their own company, Alameda, but Still, he claimed to have some reserves, but the run was too big for them. Yeah, yeah, because again, they basically loaned out the reserves. Ah, so even the, the even the percentage that they were required to keep, you're saying they yeah. it was gone. Yeah, yeah. So basically, and that was the crime, right? If and if if you read the articles, basically what it says is that that they didn't segregate what was money to play with and reserves. That if you know, if the operations apparently went went bust. That money cannot be funded, used to fund the operating expenses of the business. Like if the if the business goes to, uh, goes to the ground, they have to have that pool so that people get their money back. It's kind of like pensions. So what happened here is that they took, let's say, the equivalent of these pensions, and then they they gambled with them. So that's why they didn't have the liquidity to fulfill the promises whenever people were asking for their money back. So and and it was a twofold thing. And now pensions, they can again take the money in the pension and buy stocks and so on with it. But I guess they can't use leverage. They can't risk the reserves. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So they, they can't use so much leverage that if there's if the whole market goes against them, you know, unreasonably, they can't, it won't risk dipping into the reserves. Yeah. And I guess that's true for banks too. But when things were crazy with all the housing, with all the housing derivatives, they, nobody knew how to value these things. And essentially, you know, a one percent move in derivatives caused a hundred percent of Lehman Brothers to get wiped out because they didn't model their their risk correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I I, I heard this um, interview with um, was there an interview or an article? I can't remember. But it was the CEO of Coinbase, and he was saying the difference between them and FTX is that these guys in Coinbase they're actually so first of all they're they're actually incorporated in the states, and they're regulated as a trust. Whereas these guys basically are out of the Bahamas, there's no regulatory framework for exchanges over there. So he was saying, we have to have that kind of like reserve ratio of one to one, otherwise we get in trouble. Right? That's something that gets audited quarterly with the 10Q that they have to submit to the street. Because FTX was private, and it was just you know a bunch of you know I think it was like 32 billion dollar valuation based on all the investment from SoftBank, etc. They, but they didn't. They didn't have that regulation. They didn't have that. All right, you need to have this one to one. There was nobody telling them that that was what they should do. It was more something of, I think, it was anecdotal that they had to do that. And I think that's why they they said, "Let's go for it. Nothing's going to happen. That the FTT is going to hold up." So yeah. 
and this is like part three of the of the playbook of fraud, which is who's doing your accounting? Like, yep. uh, you know, it, with FTX, basically nobody was doing their accounting. With Enron, as you point out in your thread, Arthur Anderson, which was the biggest accounting firm in the world at that time, was doing their accounting. Yep. But all the, Arthur Anderson was also a consultant advising Enron on how to do all these frauds, which is, you That's know, of interest. With Madoff, his accountant who did his annual audits was some guy who had like an office in a strip mall in Long Island who was just getting paid a lot of money. And, uh, you know, Lehman Brothers, the accountants just didn't simply, they simply just didn't understand the derivatives. Like in every case, you kind of have to compromise your accountant. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I think that they didn't even have a CFO uh, in FTX <laughs> or a board yeah. or anything like that. Um, no, so look, I was an auditor when I was in GE. I was an internal auditor. And I think one of the reasons why that company, again, what happened kind of recently, it's, it's different and I was no longer there. But um, when I was there, so the internal audit team was pretty strong. And our job was to kind of like find all the bad stuff before and fix it before a KPMG uh, EY came and kind of like actually audited the stuff. So we, and then we had to work very closely with them, um, which is something that obviously here didn't happen. There was no compliance function. Actually, I think there was a head of compliance from what I understand, but it was uh, not, not good. Yeah, there was no CFO, there was no oversight from, you know, accounting rules, nothing like that. So no auditing. So that's why. These things happen. Not saying that a CFO is like the savior, but it is important to have one. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Here's the problem going forward. Two problems. One is, obviously, Enron blowing up didn't destroy the energy industry. Worldcom blowing up didn't destroy the telecom industry. Even Madoff blowing up didn't destroy the hedge fund industry. The hedge funds, hedge funds are bigger than ever. I mean, Madoff's hedge fund would almost be a medium-sized hedge fund now compared to some of the large hedge funds out there. And FTX, while it's casting a shadow over crypto right now, is not going to long-term affect. It was 16 billion crypto markets, like a multi-trillion dollar industry. Um, but A, how do you trust where your money is? whether it's at a bank like Lehman Brothers was or at a, a trading firm like an Enron or a, an exchange like an FTX, how do you trust where do you put your money? And then the other problem is financial innovation is a good thing overall. Like, mm -hmm. you know, these derivatives that are created are used to, by serious people, to, to serious companies to hedge risk 
and allow firms to take bigger, even technological risks and innovative risks because they know they can hedge their risk in various ways. So when used properly, financial innovation is is awake. Capitalism yeah. grows and it fuels innovation so that capitalism could grow further. So, so this is going to happen. But every time it happens, there is some fraud. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wonder if it's just a, you know, a price to pay to push the industry forward, right? Because what's happening now, I think, is going to create a lot of pressure around building some regulatory framework for crypto. The only thing that I am curious if it's if it's going to be a very negative like perception of what happened and everybody's just going to come try to hunt uh, down the the players whereas I feel like there's many things to unpack here right because there's like potential of blockchain pot- potential of decentralized finance like there's so many things to unpack that it was just one bad actor that hopefully doesn't you know messes it up for 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 everybody for all the good things that can come out of you know you know like tokens and coins and and things like that and exchanges that are more innovative i agree like imagine for instance you're at google imagine google has a sort of data token so i'm a customer or i'm someone who uses google every day like many people mm-hmm. are millions of people do and what if google has to pay Every time my data is sort of stored in the database, like, oh, here's, you know, this generic person's search data, I get, it's like I'm mining Google's data coin and advertisers, if they want to make use of personalized data for, for their own targeting, they have to pay into, like, I, I, I get, uh, I get, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, so there's some value there because advertisers, there's going to be supply and demand. Like there's some advertisers who yep. are going to want to buy data and there's some, and Google's going to want to, or I'm going to want to sell data uh, and so on. So there's some value that, that is created by a real world use case. That's, that's yep. very, an innovative use of crypto that hasn't happened yet, but you could see this in almost every industry. There are use cases that can't be done without crypto and, and that will actually make the industry advance forward. Mm-hmm. And, so there are I get I agree with you. There are I hope this doesn't, you know, just everyone starts dancing on the graves of of crypto. But here's the problem. Like the person who was introducing the law in the Senate for regulation, I think I think was Elizabeth Warren and I think Sam Bankman-Fried's oh, yeah. parents or one of them works with her or or did or or still does. I don't know. So there's going to be lots mm-hmm. of backlash here. Yeah, I mean the guy, I think I was I think he donated forty million dollars or something like that to the President Biden's campaign. Yeah, and like a bunch of others, and then in the midterm <laughs> elections too. And again, I'm not cre- I'm not criticizing him for his. We don't know his political opinion. Yeah. He was right to, you know, hey, if you're going to lobby, spend money. So that happens in every industry. Yeah, I just that you wonder if that's more like. This is something I was thinking about this morning. Did he know that this was a house of cards and he was building political capital with all these donations? You know what I'm saying? Because it's similar yeah. to what Enron did a bit. So Enron, for example, gave uh, this like Enron award to Alan Greenspan for service and excellence and whatnot. Um, so they had all these venues where they appeared to be altruistic and that because at the end of the day, they 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 
they called on those favors, right? Uh, when they were on trial and, and things like that, trying to get the appeals, et cetera. So I wonder if, you know, I don't know, like fr- fr- when you see like some YouTube videos from him when he talks about al- altruistic, uh, you know, deeds, he looks pretty genuine. But I wonder, was he, did he know? And that's why kind of he was planning, like, all right, I need to build some political capital here before, if the house, you know, burns, burns down. Yeah, I don't know. Because a part of me wants to think he sort of just fell into this. But the more I read about it, the more insidious it looks. And 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 by the way, everybody's kind of a, a culprit here. Like Binance clearly knew, like CZ, the, the CEO of Binance, yep. clearly knew what he was doing when he said, oh, I'm suspicious of FTX. Yeah, yeah. He knew there was going to be a run on the bank there and that FTX would collapse. I don't think he anticipated that all of crypto would be affected. I think he thought he was just targeting an enemy and this is how he was going to take him down. <laughs> but if you look yeah. at like Enron, one thing that happened after Enron collapsed is that every single energy company, the stock went down, you know, 70, 80, but these are utility companies. Like, like yeah. Con Edison is not a trading firm. It provides electricity for everybody in the New York City area. And the stock would be down so much that their dividends were, were 15% a year. It's like crazy. And uh, yeah. it, it brought down for like a whole year, the whole, the entire industry. Yeah, I mean that's what they were saying. I think the the term some of the journalists were using is like contagion risk, where one bad actor or one bad event just kind of like spreads out like a fire with yeah. every company. And and yeah, I think for example, what happened with Enron, like just the trust was lost in the system and the checks and balances that you know, hey, accountants are supposed to say no. Lawyers are supposed to say no. There's like all these backstops that didn't work uh, to stop them. So I think that probably the market priced in those assumptions that are like, okay, if it's happening with the best in class company right now, I'm pretty sure it's happening with everybody else. So let's wait until regulation steps in, et cetera. So, and when all that regulation starts to, started to kick in, like the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and, and all these uh, legal requirements to sign off on documents and now the CEO and CFOR basically responsible and liable if they're lying in any case, that's when I think the market started to move up again. And I wonder if it's going to be the same here. Like probably a lot of crypto confidence is going to erode. And then at some point, hopefully it goes back up. Yeah. And and look, I think there'll be, there will be faster movement towards regulation, which will be ultimately, ultimately in the long run, a good thing. Like crypto it's not like the internet. In, in, in the 90s, yeah. everyone was saying, what if the US bans the internet? Well, they can't. It was just, it was moving too fast. It was too big. There were so many use cases. So ultimately, they just had to regulate and not ban. And it's the same thing here. It's, uh, this is a, a, a moving train. And the best they should do is regulate it so it doesn't screw people over. But here's another interesting thing, though, is that people were putting their money in FTX like it was a bank account not realizing that it wasn't a bank and it wasn't in the U.S. so it had no law, U.S. laws <laughs> yeah. applied to it. Like I could put money in Wells Fargo and I can say to myself, okay, there's a 120-year history here or, or bigger, 150-year history, and there's huge laws in the U.S. I'm pretty confident, like 99.5% confident, there's still some risk, that I'll get my money back if I put it in Wells Fargo in, in a worst-case yep. scenario. But... If I put my money in a hedge fund, I don't get the same degree of confidence. And if I put my money in an offshore hedge fund, 
that has no laws, I get zero of that confidence. And I think people thought, oh, well, FTX is just like my corner bank. It's this guy's well known. He's got trust. Yeah. You know, he's got the, all the, the, the they, they make money. I see his face on the cover of Forbes. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, after the re recession, I thought maybe the only safe place to put my money is something like a fidelity where they have to, they're sort of like a bank, but they're really, they had to be one to one. They had to have, they yeah, had to yeah. just keep my dollars. They didn't, Fidelity doesn't lend out your money in, in mortgages. So there was, there was, there was basically no risk. And I wonder what people will do here. Where do you, I, mean, I don't know. Like a bank? No, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, for now, it's like a little bit of a split between savings just in case of, for <laughs> of a rainy day, some cash for, you know, and then some stocks and things like that. And, but mostly index funds. Like, I'm pretty safe in terms of how I invest my money. But I think part of that problem, I think that people need a little bit better financial literacy, like education on... Because even if you invest on your 401k, right? People say like, oh, your 401k is super uh, safe. But Enron's was not, right? People, I think one of the testimonials was that a guy had, you know, $350,000 in, in his 401k for a 20-year career. And he ended up cashing out like 1200 bucks. Oh my God. So people need to understand that, yes, it's a, it's a, even stocks, even index funds, all that stuff, there's, there's some risk embedded in that, right? Like there's, the, the company can tank, it can be disrupted. Like people that invested in Nokia, for example, and you, again, Nokia wasn't the Forbes magazine and they missed the train and then also that some of the pensions tanked. Like there's, th that's more of a financial literacy problem, I think, that people need to understand. Okay. Uh, in fact, I was, there was a tweet I posted today that there should be an exam, you know, before you invest in crypto, there should be an exam that tests kind of like a driver's license. <laughs> oh, That's a good point, actually. You know, yeah, because, you know, for example, like you have this concept of like the accredited investors, right? Where, where you cannot go into a hedge fund unless you are an accredited investor and you meet certain requirements, you have certain wealth, et cetera. I think for investing in risky assets like, like crypto and things like that, people just go for the fad and then like all oh, the NFTs and there are all these hype, you know, built by influencers. But in reality, it's like, all right, do you actually understand, you know, what a portfolio is made of? Like, do you understand your risk tolerance? How much can you put up without starving your kids? Like, all these things that I feel like it's a little bit of a test that, you know, are you not smart enough, but are you informed enough to put your money where it's going to yield the best return for you? And that's something that, for example, I learned late. Uh, and I think, you know, you should teach that to your kids probably. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I learned it really late as well, unfortunately, many times <laughs> over. And people need to understand, like if you're going to invest in something, you have to know why you're investing. Are you investing because this company makes a lot of cash? Are you investing because there's a lot of hype? So like, for instance, Tesla maybe doesn't make a profit yet, but a lot of people trust Elon Musk and they know that that's the risk, is that Elon yeah. Musk, you know, do we trust this, this personal brand or not? Um, but I invest in, let's say, Walmart because I know how much cash they make. It's very easy to understand their cash. There's no weird financial accounting. It's yep. the one of the biggest companies in the world and and it better be accurate their accounting or else the whole financial system is worthless. Uh, so then you <laughs> understand like how they make their cash. Well, they sell things to people. But with Enron, we didn't really you know, they claimed to have a lot of profits and it claimed to be this but but they couldn't but they didn't have cash flows so if they're claiming profits but there's no cash flows you have to understand that's not impossible but you have to understand why that exists 
and they weren't yeah. able to explain that. And Madoff wasn't able to explain it. Maybe FTX wasn't able to. I don't. I don't know yet. Uh, yeah. Lehman Brothers wasn't able to explain it. It was. Too, it was too complicated. So you have to really understand what you're investing in. People don't do yeah, that. I mean, hype. Yeah. No. I mean, I remember in college there was just one personal finance class, and it's also about the way you teach it. Because I remember, I mean, I was asleep in that class. Uh, <laughs> um, so Boring. I was wondering, you know, if you gamify investing for kids, you know, that would be a cool idea. I'd probably start teaching them early because, yeah, you, you need to understand, not necessarily like you, you don't need to be an accountant, but it's a good idea to understand how the financial statement, the statements work. Like a business model of a stock, if you want to be a, a stock picker, right? Because otherwise you just go, hey, this is my money. I'm going to give you 20% of my paycheck every month and uh, just index fund, safe, you know, risk tolerance kind of medium, right? Then that's fine. But if you want to be a stock picker, for sure, for example, you know, investing in companies that now are like tech companies that everybody thinks, oh, they're great and whatever. But, you know, how do you, how do you start interpreting something like the metaverse, for example? Like, how do you value that? How do you like, do you understand that business model? How the economics look like? That's crazy. Like if, if for example, if, if if Meta were to split up and have Facebook standalone and 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 Meta like Metaverse standalone, how would why would you invest in Meta, for example? Something that I don't even know yet. So, yeah, I mean, you, you either have to say you, there's two strategies there. You either have to say, well, look, everyone else is into this, so mm -hmm. I'm going to ride this train until it's over, or you could say, look, I think based on my own research, you know, and this is not me speaking, but hypothetical me. Yeah. I think the metaverse is worth X billions of dollars 10 years mm -hmm. from now. And you just, you know, you discount that back. Like, what does it mean then it's worth now? And, you know, personally, I don't, I think they took too big of a risk meta because they didn't have no idea how to value what they were building because it might not, people might not be interested in it. And that's their big problem right now. But yeah. you're right. I think, I think, you know, you almost have to gamify, like maybe you almost have to do like, like a, just like there's books of crossword puzzles, what about a book of kind of simple financial problems? Like, what is the risk in a company that's building, you know, a metaverse, but also has a billion users on Facebook and Instagram and what's that? And <laughs> what are list the risks? And, you know, or what is the risk on, you know, something like FTX that, run, that runs yeah. its own uh, hedge fund on the side? So that's uh, interesting. Could be food for for thought, but um, but look, <laughs> Antonio Antonio Reza, what what's your Twitter account name? At the Antonio Reza. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, and um, I write about finance topics and money and um, self growth, and just try to make people, you know, understand how can they make their business grow and their careers grow. Your threads are riveting. I definitely highly recommend. It's it's at the Antonio Reza. And thank you so much for, for coming on the show and, and explaining all this stuff to us and look forward to having you on the show again at some point. Thank you so much for the invitation and just want to say uh, very, very, very delighted to be here and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, 
The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.